HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, Heritage Radio listeners, and welcome to Season 5 of The Line. It's 2018. We're back. You probably already broke your New Year's resolution. You're dreaming of warmer weather, but fear not. We've got your distraction right here. We're back broadcasting live from the back garden of the famous Roberta's Pizza, adjacent to the two Michelin star Blanca, bringing you another season of delicious interviews with unique chefs and restaurateurs, all great talents in the food world. I mentioned Blanca because my guest today is a veteran of that kitchen, so he had no trouble finding Heritage Radio Studios since he worked about 100 feet away for a while. Chef Greg Prochelle is the executive chef of Ferris, a new restaurant located in the Maid Hotel in the Nomad area of Manhattan. The restaurant, which just recently opened only a few months ago, was just given two stars by the New York Times. Pete Wells wrote in his review, it's a modest restaurant that over-delivers, cares about little details, and has a personal, handmade sensibility. Prochelle has worked at 11 Madison Park, Graffiti, and Blanca, where he was sue under Carlo Maracci when the restaurant earned its second Michelin star. Prior to opening Ferris, he was the executive chef at La Turtle in Manhattan. That restaurant was named one of Eater's best new restaurants of 2016. Today we're going to discuss Michelin stars, Sasso chickens, economics, and cooking for every single conceivable hotel service all out of the tiny basement kitchen. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start at the way beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Westwood, New Jersey. 
So right out, right outside, about 25 minutes outside uh, George Washington Bridge. So pretty close to here. Absolutely. Uh, what was life like as a kid? Were you one of the families that, that came into Manhattan a lot, or was Manhattan, could, could, was it a 1,000 miles away as far as no, you were concerned? No, I mean, we, we definitely came in a lot. Um, we basically came in all the time to eat. Uh, Peter Luger's definitely is one of the places that I spent a lot of time. My grandfather grew up in Brooklyn after emigrating from Germany, and um, we spent a lot of time there. I've been there more times than I'd like to say. So um, I pretty much uh, always have come in for food. I mean, that's kind of a theme I think that's run my whole life is that I do everything for food. I mean, I live to eat. So Luger's is a good place to go as a kid. It's got a lot of excitement because it's got the old waiters with like the the old uniforms like these 70 year old guys that have never changed and then you got sizzling hot steaks coming through so as a little kid did you have any inclination even when you were you know very very young going there with your grandparents and your parents that this might be a career for you it's funny um i I don't. I mean, I wanted to play for the New York Jets. That's that. That was my dream growing up. Um, and I I played football for a very long time. Um, but you know, at one point, I think I realized that it would never happen. Um, but um, I don't. I don't want to say that I knew I was going to do it. I just knew that food was a big part of my life, and I and I knew it was always going to be a big part of my life. But I mean, as a, as a young child, I think I just I always got like um just immersed in it i mean my grandparents that that would we would go into the city with they were phenomenal cooks i mean every single good memory has been a food memory of my life pretty much um always circling around family food and they were drinking i wasn't until i was able to and then um a lot of a lot of before you were able to yeah that's probably right and a lot of loud talking um, I were, they very cooking, were they cooking German food, um, like actual flavors not, from their uh, childhood? or not, what? not really. I think more like just like things they accumulated because, um, like I said, my grandfather, they moved here with my grandmother. They moved here when he was 21 and she was 18. Very young. They lived in Brooklyn. They had five kids there, um, one being my mother. Um, and um, I think they picked up a lot of influences just from people around. I mean, a lot of Italian influences. I mean, like... But like my my favorite dish of all time that my grandfather makes is clams oregano, which is definitely nothing close to German. Um, but they use a lot of different techniques. I think they picked up when from their childhood, and then my especially my great grandmother, who I was fortunate enough to know until I was fourteen. Um, she cooked a lot of traditional German stuff. Um, not, not many things that I remembered. I just remembered a lot of stuffed cabbage, which was one of my favorites. And she was a great baker. And so. Besides the cooking, was it a creative household that you grew up in with your parents? I'm always curious when uh, we have chefs on the program, like what fuels that that creativity? Sometimes uh, it's very obvious, and other times it's it's a little more subtle. For you, was it a, a, was it a house where um, sort of creativity and, and ingenuity was was rewarded, or was it more like analytical? Go to school, get a degree. Well, that that's funny you say that. Um, my dad very much sports analytics like do business he was a stockbroker like he wanted me just to do business my mom on the other hand was very much um the creative like the drive for me i mean i always drew i still draw to this day a lot um and i was probably the biggest 
Lego collector in all of New Jersey growing up. So like I always knew that like I liked building stuff. Always I wanted to use my hands. Um, I play you know I play musical instruments. Like there I I think I always have had to find a way to like to express myself creatively. Um, but um, to say that I was surrounded by creativity, I don't know. I mean, my uh, my sister was very much like books, like very book. Like she's a lawyer now, so she's she's followed that passion very very strictly. But um, I was always kind of I always wanted to run around. I always wanted to play outside. I always wanted to do stuff. Uh, school, I never wanted to do ever. I just was lucky enough to do well at it without having to try too hard. I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, mine was always just, I wanted to do stuff all the time. I never wanted to really sit around. And it's funny because now that's kind of all I want to do is sit, around, <laughs> is sit around and read books and like read cookbooks and research cuisines. I mean, besides being at work. So you, you mentioned that, you know, your parents are kind of opposites and, and you're oh maybe God, a blend much. and, you know, the school choice that you made, you went to Wesleyan, which I, I think veers a little bit to, towards what you're saying about your mom as a, it's a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, but you studied economics, I did. which is an interesting choice for Wesleyan and for someone yes. who's just described themselves as wanting to use their hands and build things. Economics is really, uh, it's a lot it's of back <laughs> it was a lot of pen and paper and computer right very so, much very much so i mean so why that choice well i mean math was always also very interested i was actually i'm actually very interested in numbers i think like number theory is very cool um and like at the end of the day most businesses all it is is really numbers i mean at any business anywhere um but uh it was kind of it was a uh, it was a very dad conversation it was more like oh i want to you know, I want to take a minor in architecture. Like, I really like earth and environmental sciences. And he's like, we should probably do economics. And I was like, well, you know, I'm really interested in this other stuff. And he's like, we should probably do economics. I was like, well, all right, I guess I'll do economics <laughs> then. And um, you know, I'm very happy for that because it gave me a really good business sense. And I think that that's, um, that's very important. Yeah, and granted, I did, I did, I was in the, you know, I did have an office job for like two and a half years after college. Um, every moment of it, I really disliked every single moment. What did you um, do? I was an analyst for a while. Okay. And I mean, so it was like a lot of Excel work, which is great because still in this industry, I mean, I do have to use Excel. I have to do inventory. I have to do all my scheduling. I mean, like I'm very comfortable with it. So I'm very happy that I have that stuff. But I mean, especially like the last six months of um, working in, you know, working in the uh, the uh, collared and tie world, um, I really was just, it was just like, all right, I got six months. I'm going to go to culinary school. Like I got, I got to get out of this. I got to get out. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the Excel documents because you, people work at restaurants and they learn how to do knife skills. You learn how to manage your prep list. You learn how to just generally stay organized, right? Pick up dishes, how to make a sauce that doesn't break. No one really tells you that once you become the executive chef, once you become in charge, you sit at a computer for a really long time, for long yeah. periods of the week. More than you'd like. <laughs> and, and more than anyone really likes. And a lot of it comes down to just managing inventory, managing schedules and things like that. Um, did you always feel like you had like a leg up from going to school or did you feel behind? When you, when you well, went to ICE, did you feel ahead or behind? I mean, I went, I mean, I was an old cook. I mean, I was 26 when I started cooking. Um, so that's, in the grand scheme of things, that's pretty old. Um, I am very competitive, so like I didn't really feel think I was a leg down that I started late. It's just you know it's it's interesting going into a job and having someone that's like seven, eight years younger than you just 
just like literally destroying you around the kitchen and just feeling very inadequate. Um, that's how I felt. I mean, my first job, like I, like you mentioned, was at EMP. That was the first time I went to stage there um, the, to graduate. And really threw yourself into the fire. Yeah, on yeah. I, you I were like, I'll just start slow. <laughs> I'll go somewhere. Oh yeah, I'll yeah. go to EMP, and one of the best restaurants yeah, in the I, world. I went there to stage um, so I could get unpaid for an externship. Um, and that was the first time stepping in foot inside a professional kitchen. Um, so that was eye-opening. I mean, immediately when I stepped into that kitchen and just seeing the things around me, seeing how it actually functioned, I was like, yeah. yeah. I was like, this is for me. And then I actually got picked. And when I started my externship, because that was a few weeks before, I think the maybe five or six days before it, they got their first four-star review. So I walked into that. And from that stage being like, I'm, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do, the first two weeks there, I was like, oh, God, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. Like, parts of my body hurt that I didn't know I had. I just was going down every single day. And then, you know, it got easier. And then a month went by, I got even better. And then, you know, you start, you start progressing. You start finding your footing. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very great first job. I mean, I, if anyone's going to kick your ass like, like that, it's, I'd rather it be them. So Your perspective on EMP is something that I, I want you to share a little bit more in terms of specifics. I am really curious about, you know, prep work and, and cleaning. I think a lot of listeners, ha you know, have experience in kitchens, right? But not many people know, they can't really see what that level of excellence is like up at the top. And you came in sort of from an outside perspective. You were a little bit older than anyone else, probably very, you know, mature, but, but had very little experience. So, you know, in terms of the workload, if you can share specifics, what was it? What was a day like in a four-star kitchen <laughs> for your first job? Well, um, uh, I don't want to say depressing because that's the wrong word, but you like you literally feel like you're. I mean, I felt like I was letting people down every single day just because I was. I was never ready. The first couple of weeks, I was never ready for service. I was. I was always behind. I was always doing stuff wrong. Um, but luckily I had, um, the gentleman who, uh, Chris Flint was the first sous chef I have. He's a big reason of why I was there. Um, he really knew how to like drive me and he really knew like, he, he was like the dad. He was like, I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed, which is like, I think the, one of the most powerful things. Um, the, uh, the cause worst. yeah, it's, Such yeah, it's the hard thing to it's hear the worst. And you know, and he's like, he's like, you could be better. And like, you know, and at first I was just like, no, I can't be better. And then you start believing in him and you start having all this positive influence and you have all these people around you. Because at the end of the day, you know, the thing I love about the kitchen is it is, it is like I've played sports my whole life. It is a team. It is everyone's working towards one goal. And, you know, you are as good as your weakest link. And like, I didn't want to be the weakest link. And I was at the beginning. I mean, I absolutely was. So I had to work hard. I had to get better. And I mean, you're basically what it's like the prep list is you're coming in um you have four hours to get seven or eight hours of work done so you just have to get better i mean it's it was a sink or swim situation i mean with with like i said there's so much positive support there but at the same time is if if you're not pulling your weight you know like people will people will notice it so you don't you don't want to be that guy or girl like you want to be you want to be a positive like influence on everyone around you and like I always saw myself as if I didn't know what I was doing, I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure out how to do it. 
I'm going to stay up late. I'm going to look, look at videos. I mean, like, luckily we have that now. Like, I'm going to find ways to get better. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to come in early, off the clock. I'm going to do what I can just because I always wanted to get better. Um, and that's kind of why I chose that because I knew I was coming in late. I knew I, had, I wanted to start at one of the best restaurants in the world uh, because I wanted to accelerate quick. I mean, I wanted to get to where I am. So, um, but in terms of like, like one, a lot of the first, um, like, like interactions I've had with sous chefs there were them telling me I'm doing something wrong. Like James Kent, um, I joked about it with him the other day when I saw him that I was like, the first time you talked to me was when you yelled at me cause I had some flour at the floor. Like I was doing, I was doing these crab cakes and there was like flour, like panko breadcrumbs on the floor. And he just was screaming at me and you know, he's right. It was dirty. Um, but like, I was like, it's funny because that's your first interaction. And like, then like, you know, but then he saw I was doing good. And then it's like, we have good interactions. It's just, it's like, there's a very, um, it's a tough love, but it's like, at the same time, it's his love. I mean, like they want you there. They want you to do well. How, how did you come across Blanca? It's another high end restaurant, but perhaps as different from EMP as you can get it's, while still being in the, the Michelin system. For people who uh, have never been to either one, uh, 11 Madison Park, large dining room, at least uh, probably 100 seats, soaring ceilings, yeah. white chef coats, very, very classic. Blanca, tell us about Blanca. What's Blanca like? Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because like, um, until I went to EMP, not since high school, did I have to be cleanly shaven every day? It was very important that I had to be cleanly shaven. And like, um, from anyone who's, who has seen my picture, I am a very, <laughs> very, very bearded man. Yeah. Um, and um, shaving every day sucks. It's it's rough. Like it's it's irritating, especially when you're wearing a chef's coat on your neck. It's like I don't want to go into specifics, but it's like it's hot un- and sweaty. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like I don't like having a rash on my neck while I'm getting absolutely punished with prep. Um, but uh, Blanca, it was, it's, I mean, timing's everything. It's very serendipitous. Um, I, after EMP, you know, I had a great job at Graffiti where I worked with Jesus Nunez, who was a big mentor. He really kind of, he honed my creativity and um, really like believed in me. He was one of the first chefs I believed in, like just letting me kind of go. And then after that, I chased money, which is, you know, not a smart thing to do as a young, young cook. And then one day I, um, my girlfriend at the time took me to a Terra uh, for my birthday, which was a, an amazing meal. And I was just like, I was like, I want to do this. Like, I, w- I want to do tasting menu. Like, this was like such a special experience that really changed, like really kind of changed my whole, um, like kind of just general outlook on like what food could be. And I literally quit my job a couple of days later and I was kind of just searching and I answered a random ad. And then I was at my parents' house um, at the time and I got a text message from Carlo. Just being like, can you come into stage? Can you come in tomorrow? And I literally came back from New Jersey, staged there. He's like, come back in a week. I staged there again a week, and then I got the job. And at the same time, as I was off the Michelin, you know that 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 racket for a little while. So the first couple days were tough. Uh, my my good buddy Alex Leonard, who was the CDC after there, um, he you know he was tough on me right in the beginning, and then. Because of that, we forged a really good friendship, and I mean, we did amazing things there. But it's it's funny because it's we didn't take ourselves very seriously. I mean, we took our work extremely seriously. I mean, when we were there, um, it went from I believe six people down to two, like almost overnight. 
Um, and just me and Alex and all you guys there. And like, we didn't panic. We just kind of did our thing. We did it. We did it at our pace. We did it at a level that we love. I mean, it's, it's such an amazing place there. Um, like Blanca was, it, it opened my eyes to the green market. I was going to the green market four times a week. I was learning about ingredients. I was seeing techniques. It was just, it was like a cuisine without, you know, without like uh reins. It was just, we could do kind of what, whatever we wanted, as long as it was within Carla's vision. And he really, he really wanted us to express ourselves through our food and through his vision. So it was, it was, it was a, I think it's, I, I, I can't say this, that, that truthfully, cause I haven't been to too many ones, but I mean, it, to me, it was like a kitchen like that I've never experienced. It was very fun. And I mean, having the dichotomy of like here with Roberta's and the pizza guys coming in and out, it's just like the, the it's one, it shows also one of the things that I love is like that kitchens have personalities. Like people are fun. Like people come from all walks of life. Like you learn a lot. Like you, it's just, it's just, a, it was just, it was such a fun time for my life. That's why I stay there for so long. The, the interesting thing about, about Blanca is that you, you can do anything flavor wise there. It was probably not as confining as an EMP where 100%. I believe the clientele is expecting a foie course and they're probably expecting a caviar course and there's yep. probably a duck seared duck breast. Right. Mm. But at Blanca, uh, if you can talk a little bit, I'm Carlo, you know, he has a lot of, uh, deep connections to sort of Asian flavor, yes. Japanese technique, but is there maybe a specific dish that you can quickly take us through something that, um, was perhaps if you can encapsulate what was happening at Blanca when well, you were there. I mean, that's that's tough. There's so many of them. Or, yeah, just one. Um, that there's that so really many of them, but one that sticks out was one that we kind of worked together on. He, Carlo had a really good idea of a flavor profile that he wanted to work with, and it was sunchoke, soy, um, ulva, seaweed, and like um, uh, honeycomb. And we just created this small little bite that had like green almond. It had some sunchoke puree that was like cooked in soy milk. So it kind of had some funk in it, um, which is something like I never would have thought to do. And then it had a little bit of like honeycomb and then it had some like nasturtium and some dried seaweed. And just like those things like don't make sense. Like, like, <laughs> like, like, to, like, I was just about like, to say that sounds it makes, it incredibly weird. It makes but... no sense, but you eat it and it's just like, Oh, okay. It's got creaminess. It's got a little funk. It's got texture from honeycomb. It has different texture from, um, the all seaweed that's dried. It has a salinity from the seaweed. It has, you know, like a little sourness from like the, the unripe almond. It was just, it was insane. And then like the coolest thing about that dish is that, that dish evolved. Like everything that at Blanca that I that I've seen, especially while we were there, is the evolution of dishes. Like we were never like content. I mean, there were some dishes that were perfect. I mean, like the, his, his pasta game is, you know, obviously it speaks for itself. Um, like the indubi ravioli. Like to the I, I eat so many of those things. It's not even funny. And every time I eat one, I'm just like, God damn. I was just like, God damn, is this good? Like this doesn't make sense. Like it's not fair. Um, but uh, he did the um, the one episode with uh, with David Kinch, and he showed the evolution of that dish, and it was so cool because I You're remember about on Mind of a Chef, yeah, yeah, like Carlo did that dish, um, and the way it evolved was such like you know it's classic what he does. I mean, it's just like like the the, the dish that I created and or that we that we we created together with Alex. Um, that dish changed into something like even more refined, even more beautiful, and just like so different but like still like you know it's 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 so cool seeing 
seeing stuff like that. Like that's like that, one of the greatest parts is like is like seeing how things can evolve in a kitchen. There's sort of two types of excess that I think you find in a tasting menu. One is like the uh, high level ingredients that are just the ingredient on the plate, which is like a more classic French style where it's like, this is caviar. This is, you know, a, a piece of beef with, with fancy stuff on top. The excessiveness at Blanca was more about like finding weird, crazy things that no one else could get their hands on. Um, I know that there was sort of a very impressive purveyor list that Blanca used oh my at, God, yeah. at what how many purveyors were you working with at Blanca well, and and how do you the, I guess what I'm saying is like when you have no constraints how do you self-impose those so that you don't just make a 50 item yeah. tasting menu and everything just makes the cut you well, know um yeah, I mean that's there's there's so much in there I could talk about <laughs> um like when um when I got brought aboard we had a um sous chef that was leaving and he kind of passed over the um, the uh, purveyor list to us, and it was like fifty four people long. And like um, at first, I was just like, "What? Why? Why? Why is this happening?" And then you know, when you get into it, you realize that like we got ducks from one guy. What else we got from him? Nothing. We just got ducks from him because his ducks were amazing. We get sassos from our buddy Carlo at La Pera. Like, why? Because. In my opinion, that is the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Um, so it's like we had all these we had all these purveyors who are providing certain little things, which makes it very, you know, um, very inundating to like to order and everything. But at the same time, it's like you know you have it's easy at a tasting menu because you do have a structure. You know how many people you're doing. So like when you could set up when you could set up pars and you could set up you know easy easy deliveries, it's it's one thing. But um, in terms of like the restraint. Um, one thing that he, he being Carlo, um, always kind of honed in on is that, you know, we're not going to take a dish off unless we find something that's better. Um, so that makes it also, you know, at the same time exciting, but also frustrating because it's like when you have such a good dish, like to take it off, is like, it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, we had tofu on forever. Like we had the tofu dish just, I went through so many iterations because it was excellent the tofu was amazing it was made out of minute it was very cool like it was warm it was it was like it was a tofu i don't think many people got to experience um and then we finally were able to take that off and when we took that off it was like a cheese dish of a cheese that like um we were all working on and it was like like those those were those were kind of really cool battles that we won i don't want to say battles because it doesn't that's not really the right word but like those were cool things like when we got something off the menu it was almost like a celebration because like yeah we made something better than something that was already so, so freaking good. Like it was really cool. Um, but I mean, it's the biggest, the biggest thing about a tasting menu and especially like one like, 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 um, Blanc is, is that it had a really cool ebb and flow, like to get to, to satiate people, to leave them wanting more, but at the same time fulfilling them and, um, you know, kind of taking through a journey where they're not going to leave, like rolling out the door. Like that was like the greatest thing about, um, Blanca and every single person, like my parents, especially when they came and ate there, they're like, they're like, I just feel good. Like, I feel very satisfied. Like, I don't feel stuffed. Like, I just feel good. Like, you could, you could, you could wake up and eat breakfast the next morning. I was like, that's a cool thing about that menu. Um, so like, you know, to, to be really excited about something and is like, you know, we were working at something and like, if maybe it wasn't quite right, it's fine. You know, you tuck it in your back pocket next year, you revisit it. And that's like the great thing about cooking is that like, you, you write it down, you have all these things. I mean, that's kind of what 
Ferris was that it's just all these things that I've had ideas about, that all these things I wanted to try. I mean, we wanted to do a carrot pasta at um, at Blanca, and we did one, and it was a very different one. It was, um, I think, it was a farfalle pasta with with um, with rabbit, and I wanted to do a filled one, and I, I just couldn't get it right. And then, like, I spent like the better part of three months at Ferris trying to figure it out, trying to get it right. And like, is, is it right? I mean, it's good, but it, it, I'm still working on trying to make it better. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that Sasso chicken. We're going to talk about La Turtle, and then, of course, we're going to get into Ferris, your new restaurant. Stick with us. We'll be right back here on Heritage Radio. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Greg Prochelle. He is the executive chef of Ferris Restaurant and the Maid Hotel. Before he opened up Ferris a couple months ago, he was at another restaurant in Manhattan called La Turtle. La Turtle uh, became sort of notorious for this Sasso chicken, which we had been talking about before the break very briefly. You source it from uh, Carlo, which he's a character into himself, (laughs) and he's got these great chickens. Tell everyone about this Sasso chicken that you were doing at La Turtle. How did you come up with that dish? And uh, and then I want you to tell me if uh, if you were happy or if you were annoyed at the uh, <laughs> at the feedback and sort of acclaim that came with that. Well, um, I learned about the Sasso at Blanca. Uh, we did it there. Um, I wanted to always do it just because, um, like, we wanted to put a we wanted to put a chicken on the menu and like we were throwing around the idea, like what should we do? And then it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it whole. Like that's the best way to do it. Um, the Sasso breed is like probably the best roasting bird just because it's like breast to like thigh ratio is like almost perfect for it. It's a really high fat bird. It, it brines wonderfully. It roasts wonderfully. The fat in it is amazing. Um, the fact that, um, you know, like I said, the, 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 
the um, breast to thigh ratio is like generally when you cook a chicken, obviously it's the thigh will be undercooked. So then you have to oh, you have to cook it more, and then the breast ends up becoming dry or overcooked. Um, it doesn't have those problems. So you know we played around with it. I ate a I ate a lot of sasso chicken <laughs> during the pre-opening of La Turtle because we had to play around with it. We tried brining it 24 hours. We tried brining it 36 hours. Then we tried brining it 48 hours. Then we, we actually settled on 42. Um, for some reason, it just was the right amount. Um, and then we decided, like, we started, so we got that down. Then we started playing on with uh, how long are we going to dry it? You know, are we going to air dry it for two days or air dry it for one day, air dry it for three days? Um, and um, we just, we, we found the formula, the temperature, everything that we liked about it. And, I mean, as far as chicken goes, it's a really good chicken. I mean, chicken is not the most exciting thing, but you ask a lot of people, especially a lot of chefs, um, you know, like like deathbed meal, they want their mom's roast chicken. Like they want like a roast, a really just well done roast chicken. I mean, everything can have like, you know, tons of technique, tons of like, you know, cool ingredients or anything. But like, if you do like one thing, if you do that really well, like it's satisfying. I mean, um, I wanted to do it and I wanted to make a spectacle about it. I want, when you get this whole chicken, like I wanted everyone in the dining room to like stare at the table that's getting it, like make them feel really cool, make them feel really special. I mean, that's, I mean, we're in, we're in the business, obviously we're giving people dinner and like, I think it's more than that. I think it's like an experience and like we wanted to make it really fun. Um, what came out, like, did I expect that to like go where it went? No, not at all. I mean, it was just, we were just doing a chicken that we thought was cool and we thought it was a really fun kind of weird, slightly dangerous way of presenting it. And um, people really liked it. And I mean, um, yeah, it's funny you use the word notorious because it's, you know, I think that we had a lot of other really great things on that menu. And it was just like, oh, yeah, you work at La Turtle, the chicken place. And I was like, yeah, but we kind of got other stuff too. Um, but like, it's funny because that chicken also, that was like the lifeblood of that restaurant. I mean, the car, the, the roasted carcasses went into all of our stocks. Our stocks went into like a kohlrabi bisque. That was like a really popular dish there. The livers went into a chicken liver mousse that was amazing there. You know, it's, it's funny that like, um, that like that one thing kind of like saw its way through a lot of different stuff. I mean, like all of our braised meat, we use the Sasso chicken stock, which was incredibly fat and like it was super rich in umami just because of the natural like collagen in it. And it was just, it was like, it's, it was a great product to have around. So it was like, am I mad? No, I can't be mad about that. I mean, it's like, it's funny because at Ferris, people were asking, they're like, when are you do a chicken? And like, there was always a plan to do a chicken and we wanted to do it differently. And we still do, and we do do it some nights. Like, I mean, I got like 15 of them hanging, drying out right now that every once in a while, we just kind of pop it up. And if you're lucky enough to get one, like get one. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not something that's like a mainstay, but we just, I mean, I think I owe it to people that really like, like my cooking. Like I want to please the people that have been following me and that come here and like, we're just doing it just a little differently. Like we're doing it smoked now, um, which is, I think a really cool way because it's got all that fat on it. So it really kind of picks up just a quick, we smoke it out of right at the past, right in front of everybody. Um, and it is even more of a spectacle now just because it's such a small, intimate space that we're working out of. Um, but this one definitely has set off fire alarms on multiple <laughs> occasions, which is not the best in a hotel. But I mean, I think it's actually uh, we finally got that we got, we got that under control now. Uh, going from from Sue and then to executive chef at La Turtle and now Ferris, uh, what has been the most dramatic learning curve for you in terms of trying to find not your culinary creative voice, but your your leadership voice and um, and 
what did you not feel ready for coming into uh, the Ferris project that you're now is now kind of dawning on you? Well, it's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, at La Turtle, I was very, very stressed about stuff. I was very worried all the time. It was just my first executive gig. Um, I was very, you know, um, I was very confident in my cooking, but you know, being being a leader is one thing. Like, um, it was very daunting and you know i was probably less nice than i should have been um at ferris that was not at all the case um i just i even more confident in my cooking i think now um confident in my leadership skill and like and i'm i'm not a you know you say like you mentioned before about being on the computer but i kind of do that in my off hours i come in i open i cook I do the bread, like I'm prepping all day long. Like I make every bit of pasta that comes out of that kitchen, hence why I've been there for the last 130 days straight. Um, it's it's what I want to do. I mean, and I think that's 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 the leadership that I've always that I've always liked is that, you know, I wanna make sure no one's working harder in that kitchen than me right now. Um, I am there all the time. Like I will I will be there for people, like I always put everyone else in my kitchen, I think, before me. Um which at some point that's going to have to take a little bit of a break because I need a, I need at least a half day off soon. Um, but you know, it's, it's, I, 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 I lead by example. And I think that's the most important thing. And like I said, we have a, we, we practice PMA in that kitchen, that positive, positive mental attitude. We are a very fun kitchen to work in. Moods are high. Like it's, it's it, for a creative space. I think it has to be like for everyone to create and for everyone to kind of be on the same page and kind of want to go up to the same goal. Like, you gotta love what you do. I mean, it's long hours. It's daunting. It's like you know, it's it's it's, it's a tough life. But I mean, when you step into the foot of the kitchen, like that was the best thing that I liked about it is that like you know nothing else matters. Like when you're in the kitchen, like after whatever, you had a shitty morning, you had a bad commute. Um, you come into the kitchen and it's like, all right, we're here to work. We're here to have fun. Like at the end of the day, we're just cooking food. Um, we're trying to do it the best we can and try to have a lot of fun with it. But yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's an enjoyable time. You, you mentioned positive mental attitude and, you know, putting your employees first and, and keeping it sort of a, a fun environment, which I assume means like not as much yelling. Um, of course, uh, at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year, we're addressing a lot of changes in our industry yes. uh, based on sexual, verbal, physical assault and harassment that's occurring across all industries. But it's been a boys club in kitchens for a long time, and it's hopefully things are changing for the better. I'm curious at Ferris and at the Maid Hotel how you and the, the leadership team – what steps are you making now or what did you do to foster a safe uh, and creative work environment so that what we've seen happen with some other restaurant groups isn't happening at, at your hotel and, and your restaurant? Well, I mean, I I don't think we really took any steps, to be honest. I just think we brought aboard just good people. I mean, that's at the end of the day, like that's what this comes down to is if like you're a good person, you don't have to worry about anything like um we we hire based on your skill level that's it i mean that's like that's like i said that's one of the greatest things about the kitchen is that um and just like what it's what it should be when it when it's right it's you know you have people from every background every orientation possible when you get in the kitchen it's like can you cook yeah you can cook great let's cook that's it like it's it's very simple that that's why like all the things that are happening, it's it's very it's very upsetting. Just as a, you know, a member in this industry, is that you know, 
it kind of puts us in a bad light where when it's not, it's just like, it's a really beautiful thing to work in. It's a beautiful environment to be with all these people that are, you know, like that are characters and have like their own voice and have their own like kind of creative and their own style. It's just like, it's a really great thing when it's great. And like, unfortunately we're seeing all these things about the worst case scenarios and it's just, it's never something that we want. I mean, we're not, we're not yellers. Like I, I don't yell at people. I don't like yelling. I don't, I've, when I want to hear yelling, I hang out with my family because they all yell all over each other so they can, so they could have a chance to speak. Um, like we don't, we don't yell in the kitchen. We have music on. We have music blasting all service long. We have music blasting during prep. We just like you know we we pick we pick a mood of the day and we put it on and we just have fun. I mean it's 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 I don't want to say it's negligent me to think that it's like an, it just doesn't happen, but like. We just don't want it to happen. We don't want that environment. We just want we just want positivity. And I think that starts with hiring people that are a a are looking for it and making sure that nothing bad's happening. And people just are good people. I mean, Charles and me, Charles is the operator, Charles Syke. Um, we got partnered up by the by one of the owners of the hotel, uh, Sam, and he, we just kind of met and immediately I was like, Yeah, I'm gonna work with this guy. Like this is gonna be fun. Like this is gonna be a great situation. And then he brought in his AGM Jenny Lakin, who's doing the wine stuff, and like she's great as well. And like we get together, we get we get along so well. So I think that's just like it's just putting good people together. I think good things are gonna happen. I mean, you know, there's always the chance for something bad to happen. So we put protocol in place and we make sure we watch it. I mean, it's just being on top of everybody and just holding people accountable for what they say and their actions. It's really all it is. But I mean, we've been blessed with having really just good people that are just fun to be around. Since you've got a bit of a late start, even yes. though you've accomplished a lot so far in your career, uh, do you feel like... Um, you have a list of things that you're kind of checking off. And by that, I mean, are you accomplishing sort of the ultimate goal with Ferris that you've been looking for uh, since you started cooking? Or do you not know? Well, I don't know, I don't know if I know. Um, I mean, my end goal is I want to like a 10 seed restaurant on a beach somewhere, somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, that's like my end goal. Just, like catching fish and using it like i i that, that would be my escape goal my retirement plan in hopefully maybe like 20 years i don't know i'm not <laughs> i'm not done with this i'm not done with this industry yet but um i i think that like i set plans like you know i set a five-year plan when i started cooking i said you know uh you know a one-year plan a two-year plan and now i mean i'm just I don't really have a plan. I just want to i just want to work i just want to work in a fun place where i'm doing good food and to be honest like this is the open kitchen was something I always wanted to do because um, one thing I didn't like about, you know, like the finance world is I, I didn't get much immediate gratification. And like that was something that I immediately got once I started at Blanca, especially um, because, I mean, it's there's a lot of small victories like, oh, yeah, I just I just really cooked this steak really well. That's like just in this industry, like I crushed my prep today, like five minutes faster. There's a lot of those like small little victories. But like at Blanca and like now at Ferris is like. I serve something and there's someone sitting across from me and they're like yelling at me. They're like, this is so good. It's like, that's like amazing. Like it's, yeah, it's just dinner, but like making people happy is like why we do this. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's hospitality. It's making people like, it's making people want to like come back and make people talk to their friends. Like, man, like this blood sausage I had, like I hate blood sausage. And like, I hate blood sausage because the blood sausage that I grew up with was stuff that like my grandfather brought and it tasted like, you know, 
like blood. Like it was not good. So like I always was like, I want to make one better. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's like it's so fun to like to have that open kitchen environment and have that interaction. And um, like uh, it say that like this is ex- like where I wanted to be, or like this is the end. No, I mean I, we're gonna we're gonna keep. There needs to be a level of being you know have of of being happy with something, but at the same time, as you know, I always want more. So we're going to keep, keep, keep going in Ferris. We're going to keep evolving. We're going to keep trying to change stuff. We're going to keep trying to, to improve on everything we do. I mean, I think that's, I'm going to always, I'm going to always be that way until I decide, you know, maybe, maybe I just need to find that, find that Caribbean spot. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, we, we are always going to try to do more and try to do better. It's just because that's, that's just, that's just who I am. And I have, like I said, I have, really really great people i have great sues i have great cooks all who want to keep doing more you want to do keep doing something amazing so um just surrounding myself with those people makes me want to do that and it's just, just never not gonna do that i mean right off the bat we're still doing specials we do specials right from the beginning we offer critic specials which i guess is not normal which i just found out but like you know that's what we want to do we want to play like we're, we're really excited about stuff like that's when people were talking about, you know, why we chose the name or why, you know, like what kind of cuisine it is, which I'm not going to lie, I hate that question just because I don't know. Like the cop out is, yeah, New American. Um, but like, which, we're means, do, yeah, which ex- means nothing. Which means, not, which means nothing. Um, but like, you know, it is like pretty Japanese influenced. And like that comes directly from my time working with Carlo and Blanca. But, um, you know, the main thing is like, and this is something me and Charles spoke about like at length is like excitement. And like people are like you can't say excitement. That, that's, that's not a cuisine. But like, well, <laughs> we're doing stuff we're currently excited about. Like, say we got in a, a sample from like Regalis is one of our best produce, like purveyors. Like they gave us a whole bunch of like this fish or like these mushrooms or like these citrus. Like we try them. We're like, damn, like these are really good. Like these are the best kumquats I've ever had. We're excited about it. Let's do something that's awesome about that. And I think that's like that's like I think the like kind of the groundwork of like, you know, seasonal cuisine is that like when something comes in, you get excited about it. Like you get excited about a produce that comes in that's maybe only around for like three weeks. And the excitement about that is like, we got to create something. We got to get something on the plate right now. We got to do this. We have like three weeks. And if it takes a week to recipe test, then we're down to two weeks, you know? So um, it's like, um, if that, I I don't think that excitement's ever going to burn out at Ferris. So we're really excited about where we're going to go. I mean, we're only three months old and like, we're already, I think, grooving pretty good, so we're just going to keep going and going and going. Chef, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully you'll get a day off sooner or ah, later. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Tell everybody where they can find Ferris in the Maid Hotel. Ferris is at the basement at 44 West 29th Street. Um, you can come in right through the entrance in the basement. You walk into our little oasis that's kind of tucked away, and uh, you'll almost 100% see me standing right there at the pass. <laughs> all right. Go check out Chef Greg at Ferris Restaurant, and join us again every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.